Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Zechariah chapter 1 this evening, and our attention draws to the last few verses of the first chapter. Uh, Zechariah, of course, uh, a prophet, a priest as well. He's of the line of Ido, his granddad, and Barakai, his, his uh, father, who likely many believe died younger, and therefore he's often referred to in Scripture as the son of Ido. Uh, their names are interesting, the three, Zechariah, Barakai, and Ido. Uh, Zechariah's name means Jehovah remembers, the Lord remembers. Barakiah, his name means Jehovah will bless, and Ido's name means the appointed time. And when read in that order, it brings really the significance of the entire prophecy that God would give unto Zechariah through these some eight visions that he's going to have on what would seem to be the same evening. Unlike some of the other prophets, in these first some six chapters, he'll seem to have vision after vision after vision all overshadowed and it seems like this one time period where he turns and sees something and then again sees something and then again sees something. And no doubt uh, such, such difficulty as he gathers and sees and needs understanding. But yet throughout all of these, the theme seems to be that God remembers. And that God remembers and God will bless his people and he'll do so in his divinely appointed time. And Zechariah, contemporary to Haggai, will be one that will comfort the people of God in the extents of these prophetical writings as they seek to finish the building of the temple of God. He'll seek to encourage men like Zerubbabel and Joshua, whose names are mentioned in latter chapters. He'll seek to motivate them to finish the work to which their hand is given. Yet the difficulties are going to be many. And the temptations are certainly going to be certain. Uh, obviously, the pressure of the day will be very relevant upon their life, but they must complete this mission that God has given them. Last Sunday, as we addressed the middle portion of the second, or rather the first uh, chapter, this first vision he has, he has these, uh, these horses that he sees, and two themes that seems to be present is the idea of God's jealousy and subsequent of God's victory. God's jealousy over his people and his desire to avenge them for justice' sake, for his name's sake. And then, as uh, the angel of the Lord speaks and gives the interpretation thereof, we find that there is yet another portion of the vision that occurs uh, that he'll see, and he begins to give clarity as the angel of the Lord prays and intercedes on behalf of Jerusalem, saying, How long, how long, O Lord? And the scripture records there the three I am's that are made in this chapter that God was jealous for Jerusalem. He loves it. He longs for it. He has a great jealousy upon it. And then he moves, of course, to verse number 15 and said he sore displeased uh, with the heathen, these Gentile nations that God had allowed to chasten his people. And God said that he was only a little displeased, but they helped forward the affliction. And the opportunity, the illustration we gave you last Sunday, was the opportunity that they took uh, to not only just see Israel defeated, but to see her humiliated. Not just to see her be uh, defeated in a field of battle and subsequently conquered, but to see her turned out and embarrassed. I think of the Babylonians with such great rage by which they would uh, seemingly defeat Jerusalem. They could have just simply be done and preserved it to one sense, but no, they would go about and see the temple destroyed. They would see all of the fineries and all of the things dedicated and consecrated unto God taken back uh, to their uh, idol-worshipping places. I dare not want to call it temples. 
And while there they would bask in their hubris and pride as they would use these very sanctified furnishings for exalted feasts and festivals that they would have. It's a whole other matter by which they would seek to destroy the people of God. And God was keenly awake to the concern as it related unto Israel. He uses a third I am in these very passages. He said, I'm returned to build Jerusalem. And here we see it is appointed time, and now is the appointed time, and now is the time where God's blessing has come. Zechariah can say fully that God has remembered, and now the temple will be built. And just as all of this is coming to conclusion in chapter 1, Zechariah is going to look. Notice in verse 18, Then I lifted up, I lifted I up mine eyes, and saw four horns. Let me point out just a couple of things. I know we've read this passage but for time's sake, he saw four horns. He asked what these four horns were in verse number 19. And the, uh, the angel that talked with him. Not the angel, not the man among the myrtles, not the angel of the Lord that we believe with Christophany, but rather that messenger is with him, that messenger angel. He said, these four horns be uh, those that have scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. That word scattered has the idea that they have dispersed them. It's not unlike if you were to reach down and grab a handful of sand. This won't work as well with soil. But if you were to take it and just fling it with all of your might, reckoning that it mattered not where it landed, its final resting place was not a point of great concern to your heart. And that's the verbiage by which the Lord describes what these four horns had done. These kingdoms, these nations have taken of the people of God and they have flung them in every imaginable situation. They have placed him in hostile areas. They have placed them under great duress. I think of Daniel the prophet. There's a man that knew duress. He was flung, as it were, uh, to the Babylonian kingdom. And there he was submitted to all cruel types of challenges. In fact, it's interesting of note, uh, though you cannot necessarily prove this with Scripture, but the theology seems to be present. Here's Daniel, one that was subservient to the head of the eunuchs. There's grand likelihood that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and Daniel uh, were physically castrated and made eunuchs as a direct point that God of Babylon was greater than Jehovah God. Uh, they're submitted to a time in which they're going to have to eat food that is in violation to the law of God. At times, their life is going to be on the line even though they did nothing to deserve it. Later there'll be a time where Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah will be cast into an immensely hot furnace to pay the ultimate price for obedience to Jehovah. All the while, Nebuchadnezzar seems to just be doting by, enjoying his hanging gardens, enjoying the sumptuous fare that he eats, enjoying the use of all of God's sanctified pieces as though justice will never come his way, as though he'll escape as though he can commit whatever he wishes, for he truly believed himself to be the greatest of all great kings. And yea, even like unto a god, he had been part of scattering the people of God. I think of the Persian Empire. Not much better, but some better, particularly Cyrus, we'll look at it in a moment. But here's the Persian Empire. And there'll be those, it was the Persian Empire that would produce wonderful men of renown like Naaman that through deceit and guile would take and have an ordinance passed and erect, uh, as it were, a great structure so that he could eradicate as many, and let me put it this way, exterminate as many as God's people as he possibly could. That came out of the Persian Empire. No concern for where they landed. No concern for their end. 
all the while crying, How long, O Lord? How long? I think of the Persian Empire, not just Haman, but others as well. I think of Daniel once again in Daniel chapter 6. They, they, they passed the law that you should not worship anyone save the emperor. And here is, of course, Daniel praying. And his result, the aged, venerable Daniel cast into a lion's den to be devoured had not God intervened. And we could chase this narrative down through the history of time, ending perhaps with the Roman Empire, the largest and most distinguished of all these empires. It would be them that suppress the dear Lord. It would be this empire that would cause Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem. It would be this empire that would press upon them a great taxation and hardship. It would be this empire that would destroy the second temple in 70 AD. It would be this empire that would bring about the utter slaughter of those zealots who had, had uh, uh, gathered themselves in a place called Masada. Each of these empires, these great war powers, that had no caring concern for how they treated. God was using them as an instrument of correction. and They rather used it as a time and opportunity for vengeance. These four horns had scattered the people of God. But yet in verse number 20, without any singular break in the narrative, there's a second part. The second part of four carpenters. And there in verse 21... Zacharias said, I, what come these to do? And he spake, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man lift up his head. But these are come, these carpenters, to fray them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. That word fray has the idea of causing them to shudder with fear. I envision this horn coming up from thence, and here sits one of God's carpenters with chisel and hammer in hand, and he's about to cut him down a horn. That's the vision Zechariah sees. For every horn that arises, there's a carpenter that will cut her down. Another horn arise, yet another carpenter to cut down that horn, and such and so forth. This is the vision that Zechariah saw. And it is really an essence of singularity that God remembers justice. Let's take, for instance, this horn just for a moment. The horn is in New Testament annals and even in ancient and Near East uh, history. The horn is a, a representative of power, of authority, of prestige, and of influence. Hold your place here and look over in 1 Timothy, rather 1 Samuel chapter number 2. We're going to go to Timothy tonight. 1 Samuel chapter number 2. We're familiar with this. If we were doing a baby dedication, this is one that we'd often refer to. Uh, here is the uh, account of Hannah uh, being barren and the Lord blessing her and giving her a son named Samuel and her training until the age of weaning. Then she would take old Samuel and he would serve all the days of his life in Shiloh, the tabernacle. This pre-exists the temple. I would draw your attention to what Hannah said using the same imagery of a horn. Notice, if you will, in verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, mine horn. The idea of her influence, her prestige is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over my enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. Yet and through this praise that she's going to give in prayer, come down to verse number 10. You'll find it used yet again. This is a wonderful because it has messianic implications. He says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven 
shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the end of the earth. Friend, if you're right in your Bibles, that's a prophetic statement. He shall judge the ends of the earth. He shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That word horn, once again, power, authority, prestige, influence. Here there are four horns, and they rise with great prestige and power. The Old Testament has many things to say as regarding the horns. For instance, in Psalm 18 and verse 2, uh, the psalmist declares that the Lord was his rock, his fortress, his deliverer, his shield, his tower, the horn of his salvation. In Psalm 75 and verse number 10, uh, the psalmist pens that the wicked's horn shall be cut off. In Jeremiah 48 and verse 25, referencing the kingdom of Moab, we read, Moab's horn shall be cut off. And the continual phrase is interesting too. It says his arm shall be broken. God was going to, had pledged, Jeremiah is going to prophesy, though the people and descendants of Moab are laughing perniciously at the subsequent captivity and defeat of uh, Israel, in particular Judah and Jerusalem, Moab's laughing and scoffing, and God through Jeremiah is making a prophet, their horn will be cut off. Their arm shall be broken. In Micah chapter 4 and verse 13, the scripture recollects this. It says Zion, particularly speaking of the city of Jer uh, Jer Jerusalem as well, Zion shall have an iron horn. And then with this iron horn, she will shudder all her adversaries. It mentions this, that her horn will be of iron and her hooves will be of brass. The idea of something that will not easily be destroyed. That hasn't happened yet. Micah's giving something, once again, of a millennial reference. That's what messianic, when we think of it, means. It's messianic. It's looking for the term and time in which the Lord Jesus Christ sits on a literal kingdom and he'll rule with a rod of... It's not a mistake that the horn would be of iron and the hooves of brass. Now, some have wondered in this wise and said, who are these four horns? Who are these four horns? I think in reality... Uh, there are two different viewpoints that you could have on this without doing eschatological damage to your underwriting uh, uh, structure here. Uh, one could look at it as being in concurrent with the life of Zechariah. So it would be kingdoms that existed during him or during his lifetime or shortly before. Uh, the emphasis is often with those that have that position is on the word scattered. Twice he uses it in verse number 19, which have scattered Judah, and in verse 21, scattered Judah, and that ED denotes a past tense, right? And so they look at it in the past tense and would assume that that likely is Egypt, Assyria, who scattered Jerusalem, or really the northern ten tribes of Israel, scattered them in 722 B.C., Egypt that had scattered Israel in one sense going back all the way to the time of Moses, but in recent time frame, the time of of Jeremiah had played a part. Certainly, they would look at the Medo-Persians, which were concurrent with Zechariah, and the last horn that had just been defeated, which was Babylon. And so many will take that view that it's the current and preceding years. So that would be Egypt, Assyria, that would be uh, Babylon, and that would be the Medo-Persian kingdom. Yet there is, I believe, a more preferential viewpoint, and that is that it correlates with Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel chapter 7, I didn't have you turn there earlier, but flip over if you will. Hold your place in Daniel. Maybe take that ribbon from uh, 1 Samuel. 
and turn over to one of those first minor prophets of Daniel. Daniel on multiple occasions is going, and I want you to go to Daniel 7. Daniel on multiple occasions is going to relate uh, about four important kingdoms and a fifth kingdom that will come out of the fourth. He's going to identify it in chapter 2. He's going to identify it in chapter 7 as well. And I'll take just a moment and look at these four horns and how closely they parallel. Now keep in mind that some of these kingdoms will lie yet to the future of Zechariah. Only one of them will be in the past, one of them in the current, and two of them, from Zechariah's preference, will be forward-looking. And I would think that this is the preferred position to be in. Keep in mind with prophecy coming to the man, it is given of God. And when this prophecy is given of God, God is not belated by time. God can see the beginning and the end. The whole nature of God's essence is in present tense. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And so there's no reason to bind these four horns as only being past and concurrent. Rather, they can be past, present, and future as God sees these four horns as well. You're there in Daniel chapter 7. I would love to take the time to read all of these verses, but rather I'm going to move quickly through here and identify these four horns that are present. Uh, Daniel said in verse number 2, I saw in my vision by night and beheld four winds of the heaven that strove upon the great sea. And four beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. If you write in your Bible, he's going to list these, the first, the second, the third, the fourth. He says in verse number 4, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Verse number 5, A second beast. He said, I beheld another beast, a second like to a bear. And it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it, and they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. And, I be, and this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leper, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads. Dominion was given to it. Verse 7, And after this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful, terrible, strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. It was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. He goes on in verse number 8, I consider the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. Behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. Daniel continues in verse 9, I beheld till the thrones were cast down. The Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool, and his throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. He continues concerning the rest of these, and he has another night vision in verse 13. Behold, one, he says, was like the Son of Man that came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Day, and they were brought near to him. Verse 14 is a powerful verse to consider. They were given to him dominion and glory and a kingdom and all people and nations, languages should serve him, his dominion and an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that 
which shall not be destroyed. I'll stop there. We could go greatly into the coming, but in verse 15 going on, you'll find some interesting uh, interpretation that God gives to Daniel. But essentially, there are four kingdoms with a fifth that is to arise, and the alter, ultimate end of each of them will be destruction. I'll highlight those. You'll find in verse number 4, this first beast is Babylon. You go back to Daniel chapters 2 and reference that Daniel was referred to, or Nebuchadnezzar was referred to by Daniel as being that head of gold. This is that first beast that would arise. This beast, this first horn, God would use to begin the scattering of His people. And that would occur in 586 B.C. Three different carrying aways into captivity. Subsequent, as I mentioned a moment ago, the destruction of the temple. And then you have there in verse number 5 a second beast. The second beast uh, is the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire, if memory serves me correct, I believe it's 539. They'll enter underneath the walls of the city having diverted the great river, I believe Euphrates, and they'll enter in and they'll destroy Babylon and really conclude that empire. And Medo-Persian will be the ruler that will exist at that time. And then following them, another beast, verse number 6. It's interesting of him. He's like a leper, denoting his speed. The scripture will say that there's four heads. Dominions are giving into it. Prophetical of the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great of Macedon, the son of Philip II. And he will be with great fury in the space of 12 years at 330 B.C. He'll defeat Darius of the Medo-Persians and he will conquer and he will expand from the areas of Macedon and uh, Greece. He'll move all the way to the areas of modern-day northern India and Afghanistan. Folks, that is a stupendous piece of real estate. Subsequent upon his death, 12 years after becoming king, his kingdom will be divided into four specific kingdoms. I don't remember all of them, but some of them come to mind. The Ptolemies in Egypt, the Assyrians to the north, uh, Cassander's kingdom would be present. There's three of the four that exist. And this would be these, this third kingdom, the Grecian kingdom. In verse number 7, you find of another one. The scripture indicates twice, not only in verse number 7, but in verse number 19. You've got this kingdom that is dreadful, exceedingly dreadful, exceedingly strong, terrible. And the expanse of that will be the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire will conquer each individually. It will be Mark Antony that will help in the gathering and defeat of the Egyptians. And you'll remember Mark Antony will move down and he'll have a little thing with Cleopatra and they'll marry and certainly after that the Romans will come in and take all of that from the Ptolemites. They will take over the uh, Seleucid Empire, the Assyrian group that is to the north. They will conquer all of Egypt, uh, Egypt and Greece and Thrace and all of that area and it will not be done at one battle, but it will be an extensive battle. The Romans had, as it were, ten kingdoms under them. What's interesting about the Roman kingdom, and it brings to this fifth horn that's just going to rise up, that's yet future from us. There'll be a kingdom. There's coming a kingdom, friend, that will be revived of what we would consider the Roman Empire. She'll come up from its ruins. She'll take over three what were ten kingdoms and truly become one kingdom. And the scripture would say, Later in these very passages, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, the ancient of day did sit. You'll come over to the last half of that verse, and you'll note that this horn that came out from amongst that Roman empire is going to make war with the saints. 
He's going to prevail against him. I'm in verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High and time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. That's the end of all of these horns. So this horn here is a representative of the kingdoms that are present. Notice, if you will, these kingdoms all playing a role in dispersing and scattering Judah. But yet there are four carpenters. That's God's providence at work. I don't think that we should see these four carpenters as an individual, though at times we certainly could, at least perhaps with two of them. Rather, they're to be seen as a coming nation or kingdom that will overthrow the first. Who was it that overthrew the Babylonian kingdom? That would be the Medo-Persians. Who was it that overthrew the Medo-Persians? That would be the, Grecian, uh, the Greece. And who was it overthrew Greece? Rome. What happened to Rome? She faded. She'll be revived once again. And it would be Almighty God that will cut her asunder, the Messiah. You know, there's so many things to consider with this regard. But I would leave you with these thoughts. God is awake to Israel. He is addressing those that have participated in the scattering of God's people. And those that have mishandled and mistreated His people... God is going to exact justice upon. God is concerned not only with addressing the scattering of His people, but He's concerned with addressing the downcast heart of His people. What a terrible travesty to consider. The faithful that were present, the undue hardships that are placed upon him, uh, them, the merciless activity that upon which others engage. God remembers them. God's going to use this time to deal with his enemy that is exalted in pride. God is going to thwart their purposes. And ultimately, the purposes of these former uh, horns here is none other than demonic in nature. It seeks to destroy all that God loves. That's carried in great force in Revelation chapter 13 as well. You know, this brings us great comfort, doesn't it? I think I can derive as a believer... Great comfort in knowing this, that God has a sovereign plan. And His plan is always accurate and always precise, even if I can't see it. I think I told you at the onset to turn over to Revelation, or rather Isaiah. I want you to do that for a moment. Isaiah, Isaiah is a pre-exilic prophet, meaning the children of Israel are still in the land. There's at least three or four kings that rule during the time in which Isaiah gives his prophecy. This is an important fact for us to understand. Isaiah is pre-exilic. There's no Babylonian kingdom that's come in to conquer them yet. And you can divide Isaiah's prophecies into various views, the last half being the millennial kingdom. The middler portions, I guess 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, being historical in nature. You've got a fellow of uh, the... Uh, uh, of the Sennacherib group, uh, pre-existing Babylon that will come in and, and they'll be the Assyrians that ultimately had carried away the northern ten tribes. Uh, they'll send a fellow in by the name or title of Rabshakeh and he'll mock mercilessly at the gates of Jerusalem. But Isaiah lives during the time of Uzziah, that grand and glorious king that sinned against God and while God preserved his life, he smitten with leprosy 
so he could never really lead. And his son Hezekiah would rule as co-regent and then subsequently rule in his own. This is the time of Isaiah's prophecy. It's not the time of Nebuchadnezzar. It's not the time of Cyrus. It's not the time of Julius Caesar. It's not the time of Alexander. All those yet lie ahead. Now you're there in Isaiah 45. I want to show you something. Remember what I said? You can read these passages. You can be thankful that God has a sovereign plan. God is not, does not have to reveal all His plan to you or I at any one time. But never should we sit back and wonder if God is not in charge and wonder if God does not have a definitive plan and wonder if it is not fully in place. I want you to note a few verses here in Isaiah 45. Note in verse number 1. Thus saith the Lord to His anointed. To whom? Cyrus? Whose right hand I have holden. What is he going to do? He said, I've held his right hand. Why? Well, note what it is. He's going to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings. Now I want you to pause here a moment. It's a fella. He really was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar. Do you remember what happened on the night of his great feast where he had all of the temple vessels and he had poured his wine and filth and they were having that wicked feast? Do you remember what happened? What did he sing that night? What did he see? He saw a hand appear like a hand of a man and he wrote on the wall, Tekel, Telco, you farson. He knew what that was. You know what happened to him? The Bible says this. You know what happened to him when he saw the hand of the walls? His knee smote. This idea of loins being loosed, of knees smiting, I'll be, I know we've got mixed company. You know what it has the idea of? He lost continency. He was so frightened that he relieved all over himself. Notice verse number 1. Cyrus, my servant, whose right hand I have holden. I'm holding his hand. He's going to subdue nations before him. I'll loose the loins of kings. To open before him the two leavened gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Look up to verse 40, chapter 44, the last couple of verses. Particularly verse 28. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built into the temple, thy foundation shalt be head. Well, preacher, you've jumped all over the place now. What did I tell you about Isaiah? He's pre-exilic. Isaiah is giving a personal name of Cyrus, who will be a king, whom God will use in a mighty way that will cause kings to tremble and empires to fall. God said, he's my servant, I hold his right hand, and nobody's going to be able to stand before him. This man, his name's revealed. There's only one Cyrus in all of human history that meets this bill. History recalls him as Cyrus the Great, the king of the United Empire of the Medo-Persians. 
Now here's something I want you to think about. Remember I said what we learned from Zechariah chapter 1? God has a sovereign plan that's in place. When Isaiah is prophesying this, it's 150 years before Cyrus is ever born. Now, don't you think about that a moment. Who is this Cyrus? What good does he do to those that in a few, maybe 50 years or so, will be in captivity? Before Daniel is ever born, God has prophesied the very name and title of the man that would open the door for the children of Israel under Ezra and Nehemiah to return. God had already had his, may I use it this sense, God already put his carpenter in place before the horn of Babylon was ever fully raised. God was prepared with his sovereign plan. I know the second thought that we can have for this, and that is this, that God is supreme. None will be able to stand before him. The White House, Beijing, Moscow, all of the capitals of the world hold not a strength against God. It is God that rises up kingdoms. It is God that shuts down kingdoms. And it will ultimately be God that ends through His servant the Messiah, the rule of the time of the Gentiles. You'll read about that in Revelation chapter 20. As he descends with ten thousands of his saints and he answers the prayers of his saints from Revelation chapter 6 and chapter 5 of justice and judgment and vengeance on those that do evil. God will be supreme. God will be victorious. And friend, aside from the fact that God has a plan, it's a triumphant plan, there's a forethought to consider. But that is this. God always cares for His people. He cared for them when they were scattered abroad. He cared for them going way back when, when they were under the, the cursed hand of the Egyptians. God cared for them. God cared for them in the wilderness wanderings. God cared for them during the time of the judges and the time of the kings and the time of the captivity. God cares for them now as well. I'm speaking specifically of the Jewish people. God's not finished with them. Romans chapter 11 has not come to its fruition. There will be that time where that nation shall be saved. But in the meantime, I'm grafted in. I'm a child of God. Friend, it's, it's no stretch for me to say that God cares for me and cares for you in the same manner. God has a plan for you. God has a sovereign plan. God has a victorious plan for you. And much like Zechariah of old, we ought to derive great comfort to knowing that the Lord remembers, and with all of His remembrance, He remembers justice. That is the God we serve. For every horn, there was a hammer. For every evil, there'll be a judgment. And for every work of faith, there'll be a fulfilled promise that will be made. Our God remembers. He remembers Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at 
P.O. Box 126541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.